So tonight I got Kenny Mullins on the show. He's a administrator for the Florida Blood Trailer Network Facebook page. He is uh, very knowledgeable in this field, and he uh, is all about hunters helping other hunters. And if you're a deer hunter, you probably want to stay tuned uh, because it's a it's going to be a lot of information out there for you tonight. So, uh, my name is Kenny Mullins. Uh, like you said, I'm. I represent the Florida Blood Trail Network, which is a, a group of trackers, a network of trackers all over the state of Florida um, who track wounded game for the general public. We're hunters helping hunters. Yep. Yep. And in, in each county, you know, has its own group of guys that are trackers that'll come out, you know, and help you. If you, you know, wound an animal, they'll, you call them, they come right out and that's what they're there for. Right. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Well, on there, we have a list uh, of trackers by county. Um, and, and for people that doesn't have Facebook, you know, they can call me, I, you know, I, and I'll, I'll get a hold of trackers for them or I'll send them phone numbers, give them phone numbers of trackers in their area. And, you know, I don't mind helping the ones that aren't on Facebook. Right. Um, so how do you go about training your dogs, Kenny? Uh, there, there's a lot to it. Um, you know, I, I typically recommend, you know, starting with like a beef liver drag or, or even a, a, a small hide drag, but but not too much of it because it le- the liver and the hide leaves a lot of scent. Uh, my main focus is the interdigital gland, which is found in the lower portion of the leg where the uh, where the hoof split comes up and meets the leg. There's a gland there called the interdigital gland, and that's where the the scent of the wounded deer comes from. So that that is what we train with. Hmm. Oh, what do you start out as pups, or wait till they get a little older, or at what age? I, I've I've trained them from as early as eight weeks to as old as five years old. Hmm. Um, my my personal preference for my dogs, I, I like to work with obedience first, and and I typically start them between four and six months old on on the on the actual interdigital. You know, I might play with them on on the what I call the puppy trails, the, the, the liver drags, a little bit during that time. But I like to focus on bonding and, and uh, obedience first. So, uh, um, what's I know it's a loaded question, but what's typically your success rate? Uh, you know, when someone calls you out and says, "Man, this is a long shot. I've been looking for this thing half the day." You think it's worth a shot, Kenny? I, anytime is it, that uh, that you think you've hit a deer, or you know, I, I even come out even when when people think they miss and I found them. As far as success rates, you know, every every track is different, every scenario is different. Um, but typically, we're we're, we're in that sixty five percent recovery rate for the last five years uh well i should say like 60 to 65 um but i primarily track off leash which which increases that success rate uh, for for trackers that only track on leash you know they're, they're going to be a little bit less just because they're restricted right and and uh, there are restrictions on wmas just letting your dog run free right that's why you kind of mentioned that Correct, correct. On, on uh, 
on WMAs, it, it stated leash tracking dog only. Uh, or dogs must remain on leash at all times. Um, and, and even even on some private land, you know, if, if you don't have landowner permission or if the landowner said, well, if you don't have landowner permission, you shouldn't track anyways. But if you, if you don't have permission to track off leash, you either keep the dog on leash or, you know, you don't track. That, that's just all there is to it. And what's uh? What's typically your, your average typical phone call kind of sound like when a guy calls you, is he, you know, uh, is he doubtful or uh, doubting you or how does it make you, you know, how's he talk? To uh, you it really depends. Most of the time they'll, they'll call and tell me that they, they've shot a deer and can't find it. And, and I'll ask for details, you know, the, the deer's reaction, if they found any, you know, any blood, any kind of, uh, if they've smelled any guts, um, the color of blood is a big one. You know, uh, it tells us a lot. A lot of people don't realize they think bright red, bright red blood is what you want. You know, typically that's not a good thing. Um, you know, that dark maroon blood, we know, we know they hit liver. Um, that pink frothy blood is you know, obviously lung. And, and a lot of people see blood with bubbles in it and think that they hit the lungs and that's not necessarily the case it, it can have bubbles in it just from the the air so it's not always lung blood when you see bubbles hmm. now does a lot of blood at the sh- where the deer was shot does a lot of blood necessarily mean for sure he went down or can they usually still make it through it oh they, they can still make it through uh i, I a good example is I, I share this at the expos when I'm there. I'll, I'll share the pictures. I've shared them on Facebook many times. Uh, a friend of mine was, was hunting in Illinois. He shot this deer and uh, he was with a three curve, big broadhead, and the blood looked great. You know, from from what the average person would look at, you would think that was dead. There's a lot of blood. It went, there was a lot of blood for a long ways. They never recovered that deer. They actually ended up finding his sheds later on and had him on trail camera the next year. And, you know, the average person would have seen that and would have swore that deer was dead within 100 yards. And then there's the inverse of that where a little blood people thinks, oh, he definitely made it. And that's not necessarily the case either, right? Right. Yeah, and even no blood at all. I mean, our, our dogs don't re- – because we train on that interdigital, our dogs don't require blood to trail. The term blood trailing is actually misleading. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times that my dogs have recovered deer that people thought they missed. That's good to know because I, I was – yeah, I thought it was a strictly the blood trail that the dogs were picking up on. Yeah, it, it's well. There, there's a lot going on on that trail. You have your, you know, the dander from from the hide, all obviously, and actually most of the time, um, well, all the time, that's what the dogs are smelling in that blood. Is, is that blood hits the hide, runs down, that picks up that scent off the hide. Um, there are some breeds that can can break down to um, the the scent of the the makeup in the blood, but for the most part, it's that it's that dander scent. You have disturbed earth, broken branches, broken grass. You know, uh, just kicked up dirt. 
there's a lot going on on that trail. That begs the question, Kane, what, what do you do when the deer hits water? Say he crosses a flag pond. Does he usually throw the dogs off or can they work through that? No, they'll, they'll work right through it. Um, in fact, I had a track last year that it was, it was on the right off the edge of the Swanee River is where he shot it. And that deer went about 250 yards and crossed the Swanee River. The dogs trailed it trailed to the bank, swam across the Swanee River on the other side, went back up river on the bank, trailing it, and, and swam back across and picked the scent trail back up and ended up uh, finding the deer another 200 yards in. Man, man. Um, so we were talking the other day, uh, you know, what would you advise a guy to do if he calls you and says, uh, Kenny, I, I, I shot a man, but I, I, I can tell by the arrow it wasn't a good hit. Uh, there's green stuff on the arrow. Do I keep searching? Do I wait for call you? I mean, do you come out now or wait or what on that? No, the, the, the advice I would give is, is we're going to wait at least six to eight hours. Um, and, and the first thing that, that most people are concerned about is that meat spoiling. And, you know, one thing I want to, want to really touch on is, you know, the, the meat doesn't spoil until that deer, or the spoil process doesn't start until that deer dies. Just because that deer was shot now, it'll still be alive in six hours um, from a straight gut shot. And even an uh, intestinal shot, it could it could live for a couple of days. Um, so that's why I, you know, I want to stress that because the clock starts when that deer dies, not when it's shot. Right. Um, so as far as being concerned about that, we on a shot like that, we need to wait a minimum of six hours before we, we start trailing it. If we don't, going to jump that deer and just keep pushing it. Now, typically, when they're shot that way, you're going to find that deer will bed down within 250, 300 yards. If you push it, it can go a long ways. Hmm. So, uh, and you were telling me people think the shot uh, was what killed the deer, but it's actually not, right? They start dying of septus, right? Because the bacteria and that gets in the bloodstream. Yeah. Yeah. So, cool. And and like I said, with that, with that intest- intestinal shot, it, it can take a lot longer. And even, even temperature, you know, temperature will play a factor. You know, early bow season, you know, we're seeing more of those gut shot deer dying in that, in that six hour mark. As it starts cooling off, you know, we're seeing that that go to eight, nine, sometimes even ten hours. Hmm. And uh, and well, I guess we were taught. You told me something interesting fact the other day that actually you get more calls, and I guess from I, I understand why, but from gun hunters versus bow hunters. You know, Correct. I got a buddy who's like, well, I can't wait till both seasons over and I get my gun that way I, I won't have to worry about ever losing a deer when I, when I shoot him with a gun what do you what do you, you know, how do you feel about that statement well what what I see is people will take more risk and because they, they think they have a gun that's going to do more damage or um, they have a big caliber and you know they, they feel like they can they can take that marginal shot and that's never a good thing 
and uh, it just it leads to more lost deer. But and if if I had to if I had to to, to pick a season, you know, we we do get far more calls in, in gun season. A lot of that's because there's more hunters. A lot of it's because generally during the peak of the rut. But if you if you break down the seasons, we probably get more calls in, in the short span of muzzleloader season than than anything. And the reason why is because a lot of times they just don't bleed. Especially, you know, I, I keep I keep track of what what uh, bullets use, or I try to. You know, I, I if it's real busy, I, I don't I don't keep the logs as much. But power belts are notorious um, for not passing through and not leaving a good blood trail. Um, so during that muzzleloader season, a lot of people think they miss because it, you can't see the deer's reaction. You know, a lot of times you can't see the direction the deer went, and they chalk it up as a loss. Um, and we didn't talk about that the other day, but I, you know, whenever you just said that, it made me think of it. I felt like we needed to touch on that. Okay. So, yeah, I didn't think of that. Um, you're right. You pull the trigger on a muzzleloader for the first 10 seconds. You don't see anything. Right. <clears throat> yep. And I've I've shot one with a power belt too, and it didn't pass through. And um, and uh, had I not he not been laying there, I would have never believed it that there was hardly any blood. Yeah, and it it happens, you know. And it's you know it's a short season. I love muzzleloader. It's probably one of probably my most favorite. Uh, and uh, you know, I've done it myself. And and I'll I'll admit something here. You know, two years ago, I shot I shot a deer, and I felt like that I hit that deer, and I got down, I looked, I didn't see any hair, didn't see any blood, I followed tracks, you know, not no sign. Well, what the deer did is it ran sixty yards, stopped, and looked at me like nothing was wrong, and then just walked off. Well, I talked myself out of going and getting my dogs. And later on, I went back, and we we did end up finding that deer. But me as a tracker, I I almost made that mistake. So how often does that happen with with people that doesn't realize it? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so man, what got you into doing this kind of stuff, Kenny? Getting hit hard and heavy into tracking. Yeah. I've always loved working, working dogs, all kinds, you know, all kinds of dogs, hunting with dogs. But what really got me heavy into this was losing, losing a buck of a lifetime. Yeah, it's and, and it was one of those like you talked about, uh, where there was just so much blood, you wouldn't, you would think that deer was dead. And uh, on this particular one, I, I called. Uh, a friend of mine who you had on, uh, I believe it was last week, Dustin Williams, and Dustin had had a really good tracking dog, and he came out and you know same thing. We we thought there's no way this deer lived, and I was sick. I was sick for days. I I, I didn't even hunt for two months after it, and I made up my mind that I was going to get more into tracking, and 
I was going to help everyone that I could because I didn't want anyone else to have that, that feeling. And I almost gave up hunting over it. And I had my mindset then that I was going to help everyone that I could so they didn't have to go through what I went through. So what did you, uh, did you do get you a puppy or did you get a finished dog or how did you start that, that process there? Well, I actually, um, I, I got, I got involved with a guy named Paul Omer, who is, who is actually the, the founder of the Florida blood trailing network. It had just started, um, when, when I had got into it, um, and I was talking to him about different dogs and different breeds, you know, the, the pros and cons of different breeds. And, you know, like I said, I've worked dogs before, you know, it's just, I, I had never trained my own. I had always worked friends or family members dogs for, for tracking. And, uh, I was looking, looking for different, different dogs. And I, my wife actually got on Facebook one day and seen that someone in our town was giving away an 11 month old bloodhound and we went and got him and I started training and, you know, within, within 30 days, he was ready. Season started and we hit the ground running. Nice. Um, I think, I think that first year we, with him, we recovered, I'd have to look at the, at the papers, but I, I believe it was 38 deer that first year. Not bad for your first year, huh? Yeah, that that was first year with a dog that I actually trained myself. Now, do you still use bloodhounds, or do you use a different breed? No, I, I don't. You know, bloodhounds are a great dog for tracking. Um, they just they weren't a good fit for my lifestyle and my tracking style. Um, you know, and that's something to consider if, if you're wanting to get into tracking. You know, you're you're going to use that dog during deer season, but you're going to live with that dog the rest of the year. You know, bloodhounds are big, they're stubborn, they slobber, drool all over the place. You know, they're they're a handful. And for me, as many calls as I go on, I'll track 150 you know, on average 150 deer a year. And you know, the, having one dog especially a bloodhound, it'll get overheated quick. The bloodhound, because of the heat, the humidity, they just overheat. They've got the most scent receptors of any other dog. The basset hound's equal, but what ends up happening is they overheat and they get, they get exhausted. They start breathing out of their mouth, and then you lose that some of that nose. So what I found with as much as I track, um, and the environments that I track in and the style that I track, which is a lot of off lead tracking, um, I black mouth curves uh, uh, fit my tracking style and my home lifestyle the best. Nice. You mean far as the you know, guard dogs around the house, uh, going, you know, doing outdoor activities with the dog and such as that? Right. Yeah, I right. You. I mean, we, we'll take them out on the boat. We'll, you know, and, you know, my my kids actually, my kids and my father-in-law, they they walk through the woods every day, every day. Them dogs are with them. Now I, I have friends that use them for hogs, and that kind of ties into my next question: Do you track hogs for people, or are you strictly deer, or do your dogs do both? I personally don't track hogs. 
um, my dogs could. Uh, I just, I don't do it. I, I don't want to risk two things. I don't want them to end up liking hogs more than deer because I love tracking deer. Um, and the other side is I don't want them to get hurt. You know, I, I ran hog dogs for years before I got into this. And, you know, I, I've seen what a hog can do. But we do have members on the Florida Blood Trailing Network that, that do track hogs. Okay. Um, I was going to ask you about the, uh, the dark side, the, the money thing. Guy, shoot a scenario at you. Um, I call a guy out. We is late in the evening. He helps me recover a really nice buck. Takes us three or four hours. He drives from an hour away, uh, one way. <sighs> Typically, I know he doesn't charge, but I'm, I feel obligated to give the guy something. Um, what, what's uh, what's the standard guidelines on that? And I know it's hunters helping hunters, but the guy just he just spent some gas money and a lot of his time. I mean, how do you feel compelled to help? I mean, what do you do there? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, our group is a, a no no charge group, but realistically, we do have a lot of associated expenses. You know, the the fuel, the equipment, the dog feed year round, vet bills. You know, it's the list goes on, and you know, this is it's kind of a, a touchy thing. You know, I, I've gotten I, I've gotten everything from nothing to five hundred dollars. You know, and most of the time, I I, I don't even take it. Um, but what a lot of people say, you know, and, and I guess a lot of people say to tip like you're you're, you're tipping uh, a, a fishing charter, or you know, some people say you know fifty dollars for every half hour they travel. What I what I say is, if you have it and you want to share, that's fine. If you don't have it, don't let that stop you from calling because I, I'm going to come regardless. You know, it. You know, say you call me, you just don't have the money. You know, and that's fine. I'm going to come help you. The next guy will likely give me a tip that's above and beyond, and you know, it, it all works out. But at the end of the day, I don't require anything to come help. So. If you, I mean, where do you make, where do you make the decision as a hunter? Um, you say, say a replay happened, what you did with your muzzleloader, you, you, it's late at night on a Sunday night and WMA and you shoot and the deer looks at you and he runs off. You think you hit him, but you're not sure. Do you, do you reach out and make that phone call or do you go look around and call it a night if you don't find nothing? And, uh, I recommend calling as soon as possible. Okay. Uh, most trackers, most of us are up tracking all night long anyways. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many, how many times I slept on the side of the road, truck stops, Walmart parking lots, you name it, going from track to track. Um, but, you know, there, there are times where we need, especially uh, gun season when we're, when we're tracking off lead, there, there are times where we need to get on that deer as soon as possible. And, and one of those is a leg shot. You know, you, you want to push that deer. You want to keep that, that deer bleeding. You don't want it to clot up. Uh, and that's your, your best best chances at recovering that leg shot deer. Hmm. Uh, 
anything else you think that uh, we need to sort of touch on that I hadn't really asked you any questions about that uh, might have thought about since we talked about it last? Yeah, one one thing I want to want to touch on is, is the deer's reactions. Um, us trackers, you know, we we've we studied this, and you know, it's in our state we're we're fortunate we we have some very experienced trackers with, with years of knowledge and experience. You know, one thing that a lot of us do is we get together, we discuss, you know how long it takes the deer to die based on this shot, that shot, you know, what your odds of recovery are. There's two, two deer reactions that I want to touch on. One is a mule kick. Yeah. Now let me just ask you if, if you see a deer mule kick, what do you think? I think it was a great shot and he's going to run off and pass out or pass away pretty soon. That's just my initial impression. And that's what 90% of the people think. Um, that's not always the case. Uh, a lot of times a deer will mule kick from a complete miss. Hmm. Uh, so that's, that's one of those reactions that we really don't pay much attention to. Um, you know, another one, you shoot the deer, it immediately hits the ground. And, you know, what, what's your thought? Uh, good shot, hit him right where it needed to be, and he's done. Take your time getting out of the tree and walk over and drag him out. That's just that's my impression. Right. Let me tell you, if that happens, be ready to put a follow-up shot in it. Because what happens is, and, and once I mention this, you'll, you'll it'll, it'll click. When you clean a deer and you cut those back straps out, and especially up there by where the shoulders are, you ever notice how far down that spine it drops? True. Yeah. Yep. And there's that that bone, the, the fingers, what I call them, that stick up off the top of the spine that you, you cut that back strap off of. Right. Well, if you if you hit one of those or anywhere near that spine, it temporarily paralyzes that deer. And a lot of times it'll drop to the ground, and they may be there for. You know, five ten minutes, and next thing you know, they start they start crawling off. That happens. That that deer generally recovers. And if they don't die from infection, you're not going to get them. Hmm. Uh, in most cases, uh, I, I have my dogs have have baited up deer that's been had their spine shot before, but nine times out of ten. We don't recover that deer; it ends up back on camera. Huh. Hmm. So, if you have one drop in its tracks, be ready for that follow-up shot. Okay. What other What other reactions uh, do you have in mind? Uh, well, I remember one last year I shot one. He hunched up, like, started walking around looking like a camel. Uh, yep. And that's the one that laid down, and I thought, well, in an hour it'll be dead, and I pushed it too far, and we never found it. Yeah, typically when they hunch up like that, uh, you, you hit far back. You, you either hit, you know, back in the liver, guts, or intestine. And uh, you know, if you if you would have called one of us, you know, we we'd have recommended you wait in six eight hours and then then give it a shot. And you know, I want to touch on that intestine again because you know, like I told you before, they if it's hit that far back in the in the intestine area, 
I mentioned that they could live for two, three days. Right. Um, don't be afraid to call a tracker. Uh, I've done it. And I know, I know other trackers, uh, Randy Vicks, he tracks North Florida, you know, probably more experienced than most in the nation. Um, we talk about this all the time, but we've tracked deer that we thought were gut shot and they get up and they leave and the dogs, you know, if we're running off leading, we try to bay it, the dogs can't stop it. Hmm. Most of the time we'll pull those dogs off of that, that track and we'll come back. So let's say we know that deer was alive. Let's start the clock over again. We'll come back in eight hours to put on them if we're able to. If not, you know, maybe 10, 12. Come back. Now, I, I've seen it where keep going back, keep going back, and sometimes two and three days later, we recover that deer. It finally died. Hmm. You know, but just keep that in mind because, you know, I've had a lot of hunters that just, ride it off is oh that deer's gonna make it and you know if you hit the gust that deer's gonna die yeah well same with like i had a guy tell me explain the no man's land he's like uh, i didn't bother to really look for that deer i hit him in no man's land yeah typically that no man's land and this is a touchy subject there's a great video on youtube and i can't remember the name of it but the guy he was trying to he, he designed a target to try to show all the organs and everything, but what he did was inflated the lungs. You know, and if you, when he does that, and I and I know he he, he may have overinflated them, but when you start cutting that deer open and and you start looking at how the ribs sit and where the lungs are, then you you see that video where he inflates it, and the lungs, the, the top of the lungs actually come up above the bottom of that spine a little bit. And next time you cut a deer open, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. Or if you look on a look at a, a picture of a carcass, you'll see what I'm talking about. No man's land is typically I shouldn't say typically. There there really is no no man's land in that vital area. It's above the spine, you know, right there, especially where the shoulders are. That spine drops way down, and that's why I I kind of cringe a little bit when people say aim high shoulder reason why a lot of people like high shoulders because they'll they'll shoot them that deer will drop well, that deer drops because you just blew its spine out it can't go anywhere but another inch up and you hit what some people are referring to as no man's land and that deer is either going to run off and live or possibly die of infection or you're going to see him drop like i was talking about earlier and then get back up Yeah, we we were talking the other day, and I, I want everyone to hear this. Uh, when when Rage came out, got hot and heavy a few years back, I originally uh, started using Spitfires, and uh, I was careful about my shots. And I remember picking up a Rage pack at the local archery store, and it said on the box two point uh, seven five, which is two and three quarter inch cut. And in my head, I I got it where. If I blow a two and three quarter inch hole in a deer, wherever I hit him, he's going to die. And I started taking right. lousy shots. And what did I start doing? Losing deer. I lost seven in, in one archery season two years ago. I was, about, I was blaming the bow. I blamed everything. 
but myself. And, uh, you know, after talking to you the other day, uh, I kind of realized what I did. Uh, Same with your analogy about the gun. Uh, You start making lousy shots, and it, uh, you know, it leads to losing animals. Right. And you said you highly recommended a fixed blade, and you got me thinking about going that direction. And could you explain, not fixed, yeah, a fixed blade. Um, Can you kind of talk about why you recommend that? Yeah, I mean, I joke. Some of the people that may listen to this know that I joke around a lot about rage broad is. You know, it's it's a lot of joking. Um, I know they're very popular. I know that's why we – we track so many of them, but you know how it is. You get online and start razzing your buddies that use them. But in, in all honesty, we, we, we do track more deer, or I do. Let me speak for myself. I track more deer shot with rage than, than probably everything else combined. Um, but like you said, a lot of that is because they're popular and because people think that that big cut, they can take those marginal shots. Yep. The reason why I'm more of a fixed blade fan is because you're eliminating the chance of mechanical failure on that broadhead. Um, we all know anything mechanical is eventually going to break or, or not function properly. And, you know, my background, I've been a mechanic my whole, most of my life. Um, so, you know, when I start, start looking at broadheads and looking at, you know, the mechanism that holds them or, uh, you know, the deploy mechanism, I guess you'd say, locking and deploy, and how those blades move, you know, it's just another thing that can go wrong. And for me, that's why I recommend fixed blades. Right. Okay. All right. I guess looking back, to, for the guys that are thinking about getting, because I got a buddy, he's like, man, I'd really like to get into this. I, I had a guy come out and help me over the past weekend. He's from South Florida, so their season already started there. And he's like, man, I have so much respect for that guy that came out, and this is, I want to help people like this, kind of like what you said when you uh, talked about Dustin helping you. Um, I guess looking back is, uh, did you make any, like, mistakes that you can tell guys like him that are, uh, wanting to get into it, maybe look back and say, I wish I wouldn't have done this and or that. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't catch that last part there. Yeah, yeah, no, I was just saying, looking back when you first started out, is there any way to maybe guide some new guy that wants to get into doing this stuff? Is there anything you kind of, uh, you know, warn him against of, you know, I guess amateur mistakes that you might have made, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm just asking because I don't know. I'm sure they're looking back. Yeah. You're like, I wish I wouldn't have done that when I first started out, or I wouldn't wish I wouldn't have done this. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. I, you know, I have any any regrets of what I've done. I, over the years, I have really, really learned a lot, and I've experimented a lot with the training side. And um, you know, one thing is that that interdigital. Uh, when I first started, I I didn't train on that. You know, I started studying that pretty heavy about five years ago and got with a um, biologist in, in Alabama and a, and a professor and started discussing the interdigital gland and how it worked and all that. And then I got with another another tracker named Michael Bragg in uh, Alabama and we started 
I, I told them what I was working on, what I'd been experimenting, and asked them to kind of test it. You know, so I, I've learned a lot more over the years than when I first started. And what I recommend and something that we just started doing with the Florida Blood Trailing Network is, is we've kind of started this mentorship. And, you know, if someone wants to get into it, pick up the phone and call me. You know, I, I'll I'll tell you the good, the bad, inside and out. You know, you name a breed, I've probably trained it. Um, so, you know, I, I can give you some insight on breeds to, to choose, you know, based on your lifestyle. Um, you know, I, I do train dogs for other people, but I encourage people to train their own dog. And I will I will teach them how to do that. I'll, I'll go through step by step. Uh, I'm working with a guy in Alabama right now who wanted me to train his dog. And, you know, I'm booked up right now. So... But I told him, I said, look, you can do this. And it's good for you to do it because you have that bonding with the dog then. And so I sent him a guide of, of how to train. And he sent me videos. We talked back and forth about what I've seen in the videos, you know, what he could do different. And so if you want to get into it, give me a call. I, I encourage you to call me and I'll help any way that I can. Nice. Nice. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Well, Kenny, I guess we're. Um, I'm going to sign off here. You got any uh, last words for anyone? Other than uh, that, that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good end speech. There. Yeah, that's about it. Just uh, check us out on Facebook at uh, Florida Blood Trailing Network, and uh, you know my my personal uh, Facebook tracking page is North Florida South Georgia. Please, uh, North Florida South Georgia Deer Tracking Dog Training. Um, you check it out. I, I put some tips on there. I'll post videos of, of training progress with dogs. And, you know, reach out to me anytime. You know, get to know those trackers in your area. You know, go ahead and look before you need them. Go ahead and call them and get to know them. Um, I highly recommend that as well. Excellent advice. Don't wait till the, you, you shot a deer and then start scrambling around trying to call someone. Go ahead and get familiar with them in your area, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. All right, Kenny, man, I think it's been a great discussion, bud. I, I agree. I'm, I'm glad you had us on there. Yep. All right, bud. Thank you for coming on, man. Uh, no problem. All right, see you, buddy.